All right. Welcome to another episode of the Product Management Show podcast. Really excited this week. Uh, We have uh, my current mentee from the Toronto Product Management Association Mentorship Program, Sabrina Ma, who will be asking uh, my favorite pricing expert, Mark Stiving, uh, a number of uh, fun and interesting pricing questions. So before uh, before we get into that, I'll first start with you, Sabrina. Can you give our audience a brief introduction of yourself? Definitely. Hi, everyone. I'm Sabrina. I'm a product manager right now for one of the large Canadian telcos. I've worked at this company for a few years now, uh, launching a few products and services for our customers. Uh, But the one thing I haven't had uh, experience doing is pricing. So uh, that's what brings me here, speaking to Mark and Alan. Awesome. Thanks, Sabrina. And uh, Mark, I'm sure my audience knows you well, but uh, let's go through the motions anyways. Can you give yourself a quick introduction? I think the best thing about me is that I'm your favorite pricing expert. (laughs) (laughs) That's your claim to fame. That is. (laughs) Not that you have the best book on pricing impact pricing. Plug alert, plug alert. Thank you. I appreciate that. I did write a book. I blog. I um, I was a director of pricing. I wrote a book. I'm sorry. I, I created a course on pricing. I taught pricing at university. I kind of like pricing. It's one of my favorite things. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to get into it in a second. And I'm hoping, uh, I, I know Sabrina has some good questions prepared. And, and I'm hoping we stump you on at least one or two of these, uh, Mark. So, so Sabrina, uh, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to you. And, uh, you know, far away, let's start with the easy ones and then uh, throw some curveballs. I'll save the curveballs to the end. Awesome. I'm worried. <laughs> okay, to start with, um, when you're initially starting to price your products, so um, as I was mentioning earlier, I haven't really gotten the chance to price any of the products or services that I've launched at my company. What are some of the key questions that a product manager should be asking? So uh, let's just say I've done my research on who I want to target, um, and I, I've already asked them how much they're willing to pay. What other questions should the product manager be asking next? Uh, so I thought you said you were going to start with the easy ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, so first off, we're never, ever going to ask the question, how much are you willing to pay? Because nobody will ever answer that question honestly. And the things that we need to think about then are, do we have competition in the marketplace? And let's make the assumption that we do have competition you take a single person that you say, I think this person or persona or customer in this market segment is going to decide between my product and my competitor's product. And now the whole thought process is around how do they make that decision? And the way they make that decision is by saying, what do you do that's better than your competition? What's your competition do that's better than you? How much are those worth? And let's say that your product is better than your competitors. That implies you should be able to charge a price higher than your competitor's price. So now the question is, how much is that worth? That's really what we're trying to drive at. Every time we think about pricing against competition, it's always how much would somebody pay for my product relative to what my competitor is charging? Does that make sense? Yeah. So comparing yourself or your product rather uh, to competition and then pricing it based higher or lower depending on, I guess, perceived value. Yes. And then part of the question is, what's that perceived value? How do we do that? And I had a fascinating conversation with a gentleman named Ed Kless. 
Uh, he does a podcast called The Soul of Enterprise, and he did a fantastic episode on value conversations. And the whole concept of value conversations is when I come and talk to you, how do I get you to tell me what this is worth, whatever this happens to be? And it, it's truly amazing. I can't pull this in off the top of my head. I'd have to go look at my notes. But the first answer, which was awesome, was you have to get off the solution. So you can't say, oh, here's what the solution is, or here's what we would charge for it, or, or even um, what, what is that worth to you? Instead, what we're going to do is something like say, oh, you know, we get that question quite a bit. But sometimes when people ask that question, they don't mean the same things. Do you mind if I ask you a couple questions about that? Nice. And what that just did was open up the conversation. So now I get to ask you, what is the, I'm going to get to the question of what are you willing to pay without asking that question, by the way. But that's just getting permission to, to start asking you questions. The next steps and, oh, I'm going to mess this up and it's going to make me feel so bad. Mm-hmm. But it's something like, um, what, what are you hoping to accomplish with this capability? What's the goal? And while we're doing that, we're listening for something measurable. So let's say they say, um, oh, I hope to improve customer satisfaction. That's now measurable. So we ask the question, how do you measure customer satisfaction? And hopefully they give us an answer. And we say, well, great. What's, what's your customer satisfaction measure now? What do you hope it could become? What would you think it could become if we really solve this problem for you? And then the last question, what's it worth if we could move customer satisfaction from point A to point B? And that, I'm going to jump in, Mark. That's really kind of freaky because as we'll get into it, that is an area that uh, Sabrina and I have been talking about in terms of her work um, her product that she's working on. So that's really cool that we're talking about customer satisfaction. Yeah. So check out the, the Pragmatic Live podcast that was just published, I think. And uh, that was with me and Ed Kless. And then he did one a few weeks ago on his podcast called The Soul of Enterprise, where he actually goes into even more detail than, than he did with me. I was trying to make him do it for products where they typically work on professional services type organizations. Nice. Yeah, we'll put the links to, to both of those in the, in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Cool. What's next, Sabrina? So I guess another question. Um, and Mark, you were just touching on value conversations, just kind of leading us to like the value-based pricing model. And one thing that makes sense with this model is that it satisfies both parties. Um, the price meets customer expectations. Like it's based on what they're willing to pay. Um, while also maximizing the business's profits. Uh, But what happens if there's demand for a product, but customers aren't willing to pay a price that even allows the business to break even? So they say they're willing to pay a certain amount, let's just say, but they're they're not actually willing to pay that. What tactics should the product manager then consider? I'm not sure there's an answer to that question. Let Let me try to restate the question slightly differently. Um, in words that I would normally use. When, when we think of a customer's willingness to pay, uh, that would be, in my mind, it's the most that they would ever pay. It is really hard for us to figure out precisely how much any customer is willing to pay. 
all the exercises we do, all the work we do, we're trying to get as close to that as we can, but we're never going to get there. In the end, the customer gets some value. They're willing to pay something more than they actually paid. On the other hand, there's a number and let's call it what we're willing to accept. So the lowest price I would ever take for this product. And if the customer, if the customer could figure that out, they would be negotiating with us so that we could get the price down as close as possible to the willingness to accept number. Price usually, usually if a transaction happens, price is somewhere between their willingness to pay and our willingness to accept. And if I were to describe or try to reinterpret the question you asked, what happens if their willingness to pay is lower than our willingness to accept? And what happens is there's no transaction that happens, right? Because they don't want to pay as much as we're willing to take. And if we're not willing to take less and they're not willing to pay more, we don't have that win-win situation. Mm -hmm. If you find yourself in a situation like that, the only thing I could think of is to try to find different customers, find different market segments where the willingness to pay is higher than your willingness to accept. I mean, there, there are also many, many other things that could be going on here. So why did we choose a willingness to accept that's so high? Did we use fixed costs as we were trying to calculate that willingness to accept, which was insanity and we should never do that. Um, and in the end, if we can't solve the problem, just using logic and what makes sense, because we're never going to force buyers to buy something they don't want, then the only answer is to stop making the product and get out of the business. Hello, Pragmatic Live listeners. You know we're passionate about product management, and we've been training professionals like you since 1993. If you're ready to increase product sales, reduce time to market, and improve customer satisfaction, register to experience a Pragmatic training session today at pragmaticmarketing.com slash buy. Yeah, and if I can ask, if I can jump in here, Sabrina, and ask a follow-up question. Um, so is this a product that is a standalone product or is this a product that maybe is an add-on to existing products for existing customers? Can you give us a, a bit of background in terms of what, what that context is? Uh, so say it's a maybe a sole product. Um, standalone? Standalone product, okay. exactly. Okay. Yeah, so it sounds like Mark is saying then we we can't do a we can't do a deal. Is that right, Mark? Yeah, if if their willingness to pay is lower than our willingness to accept, there's just no there's no place to to make a compromise. There's no deal to be had. Is one idea maybe that we have if we could figure out a way to drive our I know I know costs never factor into pricing decisions, but <laughs> but you know is one tactic or is it foolish to, to try to drive your costs down so that you can try to, you know, still make your margin, but, but still hit that willingness to pay? Or is that a, is that a fool's errand? So that's not necessarily a fool's errand. When we say costs don't matter to pricing, what we're always saying is don't use your costs when you're trying to calculate how much your customer is willing to pay. But costs absolutely matter to pricing in the sense of, am I willing to accept this deal or not? And costs absolutely matter to business in that the more I drive my costs down, the more profit I'm going to make. 
So if you think there's room to drive costs down, so somehow we could move down our willingness to accept number, make it lower, then maybe we could get to where there's a deal. Alternatively, if there's a way that we could drive their willingness to pay number up, and we do that through things like emphasizing the problems that we're solving as opposed to the fact that we have this product feature that, that somebody else doesn't have. Right? But how much value does that really drive into the customer and we help them understand that? Maybe we can move their willingness to pay up while we do that. So either of those would be, would be fine answers if we could find a way to do that. Okay, so it sounds like there's a few different things that the product manager could do if there's an option to reduce costs. That's something that we can um, consider if the customer is willing to pay as X and your cost can be a little lower than that or find a different set of customers where their willingness to pay is a little higher, or um, use marketing and sales tactics to try to increase their willingness to pay based on maybe features that are part of the product. Yes, and uh, the marketing and sales tactic one didn't sound nice. I, I, would have <laughs> said, I would have instead said something like, help make sure our buyers understand the true value that we're delivering to them because we're not trying to trick them. We want them to understand our value. Really emphasizing the value for serving using tactics, that's fair. Yes, and then quick question, is this, a, if it's a real product, is it software or hardware? Uh, for this one, uh, I didn't have a particular software hardware question in mind, um, but it was more so if you have this idea um, and it seems like you know, you're asking uh, potential customers or your family friends to see uh, whether this would be something that they would um, appreciate potentially as a solution, maybe solve some of their problems, but then uh, you find out that they're not really willing to pay what you, know, you would need to even break even, um, then is there even like, uh, an opportunity to move forward with that idea? Yeah, the, the first thing that jumps to mind there is that it's probably not your friends and family that would be your market. There are probably people out there that truly value what you're trying to do and would pay you for it. Mm -hmm. Friends and family feels like a really small group to go ask. That's fair. Yep. Um, so if we can pivot to another question, um, I like the ideas that you're bringing forward some different options for the product manager to consider. Um, what are some of the main differences in pricing strategy between B2B companies versus B2C? Um, <laughs> so are there any strategies that work better or are more common for B2C corporations than uh, B2B? Uh, what a fascinating question. When I teach my pricing class, I actually start the day out with a comment that says something like, we're going to teach you some fundamental concepts and they apply equally to both. And they really do. Absolutely. Most of the things we think about when we think of pricing really do apply to both. Um, the one exception that I would say is in the B2C world, we have a retail component. So oftentimes we have uh, people going to a retail store or they're going to buy online. And in that retail component, Firms find themselves in what's called a Tioli market. Tioli is T-I-O-L-I, which stands for take it or leave it. And what that means is that when someone walks into the store, say to buy a bag of potato chips, they see that it's 2 dollars 
they don't go to the cash register and say, hey, I'll buy these if they're only $1.80. They either buy them at $2.99 or they don't buy them. There's no negotiations going on. In most B2B markets, there's negotiations that goes on. And that's a huge difference because if you're going to have a salesperson out negotiating, that gives us a lot of flexibility in price segmentation, figuring out how we're going to charge different customers, different prices, how we can communicate our value. Um, so that gives us a huge step up in that B2B world. Now, sometimes in B2C, we live in that. So sometimes as consumers, we negotiate for houses, we negotiate for cars, but most things that we as consumers buy, we just say, what's the price? And then we just buy it or we don't buy it. And so from that perspective, it's a slightly different business model or different market. In the world of retail, retailers have these people that work for them called category managers. So if you go to the grocery store, there's a category of products and, and let's assume that one category is dairy. And so the, the dairy category manager is managing the, the product portfolio and the pricing of the skim milk and the whole milk and the 2% milk and the yogurt and the cheese. And, and so they're managing that entire category trying to say, how do we get the right products and the right prices to maximize revenue or profit out of this, this specific category? Now, what's fascinating about that is they're essentially doing a portfolio pricing exercise saying, I control the prices of everything in this portfolio. Now, how do I influence or think about how people are gonna make decisions inside my portfolio? In the B2B world, many product managers also manage a portfolio of products. So we have the base product, plus we have um, options that we might sell, or we have other complementary services that we could offer, or warranty capabilities, or implementation. So, so we have these portfolios as well, and we should be thinking just like retail category managers do in terms of how do I maximize my revenue and my profit out of my portfolio of products. And I'd say that's probably the single biggest difference you see in, in retail versus B2B, B2C versus B2B. One more quick comment on this though. <laughs> Maybe it's not so quick. We often think or claim that companies are logical and consumers are not. And it turns out that's really not true. Uh, cons consumer, uh, by the one that says consumers aren't logical, we still think of them as logical or rational and many, many decisions we make can, can be better if we assume they're rational. But on the side that says businesses are rational or logical, they're really not. Uh, just like consumers may not actually know the quality of a product, businesses don't actually know the quality of a product. Consumers may not actually know what they need, businesses don't actually know what they need. And so there's still this emotional, irrational component to decision-making that goes on, on in the business-to-business -business side as well. Got it. Okay. Um, and would you say that, um, I know as a product manager, especially when you're focusing on pricing, you need to really um, be in tune with what your competitors are um, pricing their products at. Would there be a difference in the B2C versus B2B world? So in the B2C world, if retail, like if the retail component is the key difference, um, and it's really take it or leave it, if there's any changes in competitor pricing, they'd have to be um, 
on top of that uh, a lot more quicker. And I guess it depends on how quickly the pricing changes. Would there be a difference in your perspective um, where potentially B2C um, pricing managers would have to really catch on to some of these changes uh, more so than people that are um, in the B2B world? It, really interesting question. So, so the concepts behind both are identical. In the B2C world, though, prices are changing constantly. It's amazing. And nowadays in this connected internet world, most B2C companies have software programs that are watching the retail prices on websites. They're watching their competitors' prices so that they can make really fast decisions on we need to change our price, what's going to happen. And in fact, sometimes these companies, they put in automated pricing tools where they say, oh, I just want my price to be 1% below my competitor's price or 1% above my competitor's price. And so they're always almost automatically tweaking prices. I mean, it's, Alan nicely plugged my book, but it was probably a couple years ago. I went on Amazon and the, the publisher had run out of books. The only people who were selling my book on Amazon were people who still had a little bit of inventory and they were all using one of these automated pricing tools. And the price of my book on these tools was over $250. Now I'm sure nobody paid $250 for my book, no matter how good that made me feel. But, but just for fun, I had some books in my closet. I said, I'm going to sell those on Amazon. And I turned around and listed some books on Amazon at $25, I think. And I watched their prices just tick down to where they became more and more competitive with the price that I had listed it for. And it was just kind of a fun experiment to try to change the pricing of these automated systems just by having a competitor out there at a much lower price. That must have felt pretty good uh, seeing your, your books on Amazon for 250. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would have, uh, I don't know if I would have put my books up there. I would have left it at that, but. Well, I fair. wasn't getting the 250 bucks. That's the problem. <laughs> okay, and then um, I noticed in one of your articles, and um, this is a different topic, uh, but you mentioned how a London restaurant had done surge pricing. So I'm switching over to a surge pricing question now. Okay. Um, and that this London restaurant had done it right. Uh, rather than pricing higher during peak hours, uh, they simply maintained the price throughout the day and then lowered it during off peak hours. Um, so if we use the example of Uber, they're able to raise prices during peak hours and they're still able to have customers pay for it. So if a company like Uber, if they're able to maintain profitability using this surge pricing approach, uh, would you still recommend changing this approach? And if yes, why? So here's the real thing that happened with the London stores. So, so let's project ourselves five years into the future. Assume this London restaurant is still doing surge pricing. You could look at that and say, they're exactly like Uber. On busy days, it costs more than on non-busy days. And Uber, at busy times, they charge more than at non-busy times. So it's actually identical. The real point of that article was to say the transition from not doing dynamic pricing to doing dynamic pricing. 
let's talk about Uber for a second. When they came out, was it four or five years ago, maybe more? Um, I remember that first New Year's Eve, uh, one of my friend's daughters had a $75 Uber ride for two miles or something like that. And the news was amazing, amazingly negative about Uber and the fact that people were paying these ridiculous prices. And, and Uber's problem was they hadn't set expectations. People didn't know that this is what was going to happen. And the next year they changed the app so that when you signed up for a, a ride at 1230 on January 1st, they told you, hey, this is a 3X surge. This is going to be real or a 10X surge, whatever it was. This is going to be really expensive. And so they were learning how to set those expectations for their customers. Now, they still got some negative press that year, but it was less. And over time, what's happened is we as a, as a market have learned to expect surge pricing from Uber. So this is just the way it works. A really similar thing is if you wanted to go get a hotel room in Austin during South by Southwest or in whatever city the Super Bowl is in. So if you're going to go to a really popular place where everybody's going at that point in time, hotel rooms are really, really expensive. Well, we get it. That's just the way it is. The problem the restaurant had was that's not the way it is. We always pay the same price. It doesn't matter what time you go to the restaurant, you pay the same price. So they wanted to implement surge pricing, which makes a ton of sense, but they want to do it in a way, or they should want to do it in a way that doesn't upset their customers. The easiest way to do that is instead of saying, hey, I'm going to raise prices on busy nights. They say, hey, I'm going to lower prices on non-busy days. And then six months from now, they can raise all their prices. And the equivalency, it's exactly equivalent to the fact that they would have raised prices on busy nights, but they didn't upset their market. Yeah, it's a, it's a, if I can jump in here, mm -hmm. it's a psychological difference, right, Mark? And I, and oh. I know this same tactic can be used, for example, if you want to offer uh, an introductory price, you know, to get out and, and get some initial market share. You don't want to set a precedent by setting too low a price. Um, so one way that you, you, I've seen people do that is, yeah, you offer a, a very um, appealing high, high, high discount um, initially, that way, the the perception in the market is okay. Your price is 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 X, uh, and therefore you don't have to worry about um, you know raising it later because you've made it clear that it's a discount. Am I on the right path here? Yeah, I I don't think they're identical, but the no. the concept no. is the same okay. in the sense that people hate price increases, and so what we're going to try to do is find a way to uh, people hate unfair pricing. Let me say it that way. What we're going to try to do is find a way to make them think that it's fair. And so even if what you're doing is, is what you just described, Alan, we're going to, we know we're going to offer it a low price in the beginning and then we're going to raise prices later. People might see that as unfair, but if I offer it as a high price with a big discount and then later I take the discount away, it's people are less likely to see that as unfair. And, and what we're doing is we're creating a plan that says, how can we project ourselves into the future when we do change the prices this way so that people are more likely to think it's fair? They're, they'll be less upset with us. So that, we, that led me to my next question, but I, I think you kind of answered it, Mark. Um, if a company did want to implement dynamic pricing, 
um, and take the same approach as that London restaurant where they charge less during off-peak hours or they provide discounts during off-peak hours? Um, should they raise the base price and then offer discounts? Um, would that be the next steps that uh, a company can take if they wanted to use dynamic pricing? Yeah, I would probably do it the other way. I would do the discounts first and then raise prices. And, or I guess the alternative is I could raise prices today, but I need it to stabilize. So let's say I'm going to hold it for three to six months so that the market has come to accept that these are my new prices. And then I can start to do dynamic pricing. Um, but, but what we don't want to do is say, Hey, I'm raising all my prices, but I'm lowering prices at off peak times because people will look at that as, Oh, you're raising prices on peak times. Yeah, the customers can tell they're not, um, they're logical, like you were saying earlier. Yes. And, and as I'm thinking through this, what's happening is I don't expect, most restaurants, I don't expect to pay a different price on Friday night versus Monday nights. When you implement that pricing policy, I'm going to look at that and say, wow, that's weird. What's going on? Now, if what's going on is, you just raise prices on me on Friday night, I'm unhappy. If what's going on is you just lowered prices on me on Monday night, I feel good about that. Rarely do people say, oh, look, that restaurant raised their prices. We don't know if a restaurant raised their prices or not. But we do know if they're going to charge a different price Friday night versus Monday night. And if I can jump in here again, Mark, I, I've heard... Um, that there are psychological studies that have shown that, you know, innately people um, have a greater fear of loss than an appreciation of gain, if that makes sense to you. In other words, um, people are more going to be more motivated to avoid loss than they are to, to get a gain. Is, is that fact, is that kind of part of the essence of this philosophy or the psychology you're talking about? Yes. So um, what you're talking about is a, there's a concept called prospect theory in economics and the words they always use are losses loom larger than gains. And the equivalent loss feels more painful than a gain of the same size feels beneficial or positive. But I think the easiest way to think about that, instead of trying to assume that we've got gains and losses and all that, assume that people hate losses people don't want to be taken advantage of. They don't want to be seen as being unfair or being on the other end of unfair. And so we need to, as we do pricing, we need to make sure we're always thinking about that and trying really hard not to let our customers believe that what we're doing is unfair. And the problem is fairness is in the mind of our buyers. It doesn't matter what we think is fair. It matters what they think is fair. And so our job is going to be trying to figure out how do we present things in a way where they think it's fair. Okay, Mark, if I can ask a few questions on competitor pricing now. Mm -hmm. And we had spoken about this briefly, um, but maybe I'll articulate the, the question a little bit more clearly here. Um, so say you're scoping out a competitor's pricing, uh, and you were mentioning this, especially for uh, those in the B2C world where uh, you either take it or leave it. 
Um, so you're taking a look at competitor pricing and it should help inform whether you should be pricing higher or lower um, based on the perceived value of what they're offering versus what you're offering. But how do you know how much higher or how much lower you should be pricing at? There are, I'm going to answer that in two very different ways. One way is we could do statistical analyses and vary our price points and watch what happens and watch how our competitors respond and end up finding a median where we say, here's the number at which it looks like we're most profitable, that they're going to behave right. And this is how many people buy our product. And so we could do statistical tests in that respect and make it happen. Um, and that's interesting. I, I don't mind doing that at all to understand it. Even more important in my mind is trying to put ourselves in the minds of our buyers. And the way I would do that is I would go back to the value conversations, but here's what's really important. You have to be specific about the market segment because there are some people who value what you do better than your competitors a lot. And there's some people who may not value it at all. And some people who may value it a little bit. And what we're now thinking is, who am I trying to win? Do I want to win those people who value it a lot, in which case I would charge a pretty high premium over my competitors? Or do I want to just win those people who value it a little bit, in which case I have to go for a lower premium? And so now I'm losing money from those ones that we're valuing it a lot. And, and this, of course, is making the assumption we're selling a single product and a single price point and a single distribution channel. But but I always try to put my mind in the shoes of our buyers to figure out how do they make that decision so that I can figure out how I can price the product. Okay. And a follow-up question to that. Um, how do you know whether or not you should react? So they're not, um, they're not changing their base price, but let's just say they're offering discounts. How do you know whether or not you should offer a discount um, to match your competitor's discount? Let's just say. Okay, so this is a really tricky question. First thing, um, Simon Kucher Partners, who's a consulting firm that does uh, pricing consulting, they do a survey every year. And one year they had asked the question, are you in a price war? And it turns out that 59% of the people that asked said they were in a price war. And then they asked, who started it? And it turns out that 88% of those 59% said the other guy started it. And what that says to me is we often look at our competition and say they're trying to compete on price. Where in truth, they're probably not. They're probably just like we are and they're trying to compete on value but they look at us and they see us competing on price because we're lowering prices or giving big discounts so that we can win a deal someplace. We need to not fight our competitors so hard. And, and this is a weird concept, but what ends up happening is when we see our competitors, let's say our competitors lower their price, whether it's through a discount or a marketing program or whatever it is they do, we need to step back and ask ourselves, why are they doing this? Are they trying to steal market share from us? Are they going in with a lower price so that they can steal share from us? And if that's the case, I'm probably going to respond in some way. However, it's very possible that they're doing it because 
they had excess inventory in the factory and they had to get rid of that before they launched their brand new product. Or they have a new product coming out and they just want to make sure that they're getting rid of all of the old inventory before they bring the new one out. Um, but there are different reasons why our competitors might be lowering their prices. We need to do our best to try to understand why, because if, if we could believe it's a temporary price decrease, our best bet is to not lower our prices. If, if we think it's a permanent thing, we're probably going to try to find a way to lower our prices. There's, when it comes to competitive pricing, there's oftentimes, um, I'm going to say the words implicit communication going on. Um, firms are not allowed to call each other and say, hey, you raise your prices, I'll raise my prices. If you do that, you go to jail. Never, ever do that. But firms find ways to implicitly collude with each other just because, oh, you did this, I'm going to do that. You did that, I'm going to do this. And oftentimes, if we see our competitors doing something that we think is really stupid, we could send them a message through us doing a really aggressive price maneuver in something that in some field or some product line where they have a bigger market share than we do and, and it's going to be painful to them to come match our prices. They say, oh yeah, that probably wasn't a good idea. Let's take those other prices back to where they needed to be. So we have these weird communications that go on just through price signaling from competitors. And so there, it's really a complex answer to the question. It's, it's hard for me to say, here's the answer. Okay, but it does sound like if you're in a situation where your competitor has offered a discount, really you should be assessing to see why they might have done that. So Absolutely. if they're trying to steal market share and if that's important for you, then maybe you might want to match and you might want to drop. But if it's a permanent increase or if it's a temporary increase, that would dictate or that would help guide whether or not you should be responding. Yes, it's going to help you think through the process of what you want to do. Yeah, and if I can jump in here, guys, um, as you're talking there, you know, uh, there's a phrase that I love, which is the race to the bottom, right? Oh, God, yes. You see in some commodity markets, and, and, and it's kind of like what you're saying, Mark, which is you have to be careful that, you know, if you imagine a plane that stalls out and, and, and you know, you're just rushing towards the ground, you know, that, that creates a death spiral for everybody that's in the market, right? So, um, you know, that, that, that's interesting, interesting discussion because, yeah, I think, I think without colluding, I think all of the peers, let's say, would rather have the value that's perceived in the, in the customer's mind stay at, you know, a fair level, right? Oh, absolutely. Back when I was uh, a professor, I had my class do an experiment or a, uh, I guess we'll call it an experiment, an exercise. It was called, um, we were using the prisoner's dilemma. Uh, I'm not going to explain the prisoner's dilemma the way it traditionally is. I'll do it in pricing terms. But in pricing terms, the prisoner dilemmas, prisoner's dilemma goes like this. Um, Sabrina, you and I are, are both, uh, we're different competitors on a product. And if I charge $10 or if I price high, and you price high, we both make a lot of money. If I price high and you price low, you make even more money and I don't make very much money at all. If you price high and I price low, I make a lot of money and you don't make much money. And if we both price low, 
we both make a little money, but not a lot. And so the, the real solution to this problem is, well, I guess before I give you that, let me tell you the, the real problem is if you know what I'm going to do, the best answer for you is to always price low. Because if I price high and you price low, you make a whole lot of money. If I price low and you price low, at least you make some money. And so it's always in your benefit to price low. But if we both always price low, we don't make as much money. The best answer is if we could both price high over and over and over again. And what ends up happening is when you run this experiment, you run this study, the companies who make the most profit are the ones who aren't super aggressive against their competition. I'm willing to price high. I'm willing to let my competitors make money because then I make money. But if I, if I am jealous or envious and I don't want my competitor to make any money, I'm going to end up not making money. And it's just a really great example where this concept of coopetition, we may be competing with each other, but in a way we're also cooperating with each other to make the industry profits reasonable so we can be in this business. And do you find that this is a common mistake that pricing managers make, that they tend to price low when really they should be pricing higher? So what's going through my mind right now is you ask the question, do I think it's a common mistake that pricing managers make? And I would say if the pricing manager is educated, no, they don't make that mistake. I don't think enough companies have educated pricing teams or pricing people. Their pricing people are more along the lines of, um, we're going to manage the price book and we're going to make sure we have the right margins and we're going to make sure we quote the deals right. But they're not really the people that are saying, here's how we set prices. Here's how we negotiate prices. And companies that have real pricing teams that are well-educated don't have this problem because they understand this really well. Companies who don't have, I mean, I guess I'll say the word sophisticated pricing teams then they do tend to have this issue just because they think price is going to drive their business. Got it. So it's more so a, a mistake. Um, if you don't have an educated team helping with the pricing strategy. Yes. You're much more likely to find this error in those types of companies. Are there any other common mistakes that you find companies making with their pricing strategy? Well, the number one and biggest one is using cost plus pricing. Um, now, to be fair, is it a mistake? It's suboptimal, almost guaranteed that if we use a different pricing methodology, those companies would make more profit. However, they're probably profitable and it takes some of the risk away. So could I call it a mistake? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, it, they would be better if they used value-based pricing instead of cost plus pricing. What's the second uh, biggest mistake you see out there, Mark? <sighs> Do I have to rank order them? <laughs> oh no, what's another one? <laughs> and by the way, I, I was going to mention to you, Mark, I'm going to edit out all your deep size um, you know, oh, you don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, are there other, because uh, I think it's a good question, Sabrina asks, are there other common mistakes, let's say, we don't have to rank them. 
Yeah, there are, there are lots of common, mis- lots of mistakes that companies tend to make. So not having pricing committees or teams um, is a really big mistake because I think a, a good pricing person inside a company never sets prices. But what they do is they consult or coach with people at profit and loss responsibility to try to help them understand pricing better. Another mistake, once you understand pricing, then you have the ability to build product portfolios where we get the most from our marketplace. People tend, or companies tend not to take pricing into account as they're deciding what product should we build? What should the portfolio look like? Where using pricing knowledge can build really profitable product portfolios. Um, How about this one? The CEO not being involved with pricing. Huge mistake. Now the CEO doesn't have to go set prices, but if he doesn't talk about value and pricing every day or every week, then the company doesn't take that as a priority and we'll end, our, we'll end up back into cost plus pricing or I've heard the word satisficing, right? We're doing well enough. We don't have to optimize profit. We don't have I'm to, just going to, to sorry, Mark, I'm just going to add an editorial there that it could be he or she, the uh, CEO. That's absolutely true. He or she. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then one other pricing question, or sorry, competitor pricing question that I had. Uh, Mark, you wrote another article about how nobody wins when implicit collusion breaks down. Uh, and you used a key example being Black Friday. Um, so you were also mentioning earlier in the podcast that uh, pricing managers, it's a lose-lose situation or it's not the optimal solution um, when companies both price lower. So with competitors pricing more aggressively during Black Friday each year, is there anything that companies can do to avoid pricing below cost during this time? Or is it almost a lose-lose situation during Black Friday? I'm, I'm glad you reminded me of that. The reason I wrote that article was because I had done a podcast on Prisoner's Dilemma and I couldn't think of an example where everybody would be familiar with it and companies were both not implicitly colluding. And so Black, Black Friday is a great example of that. Is there a solution to that? Not really. Because once my competition goes low, I don't really have a choice but to go low. If we assume that's, that we're playing the prisoner's dilemma. And the reason that that, that, that happens during Black Friday is because I'm not going to punish you next week or next month. I have to wait until next year before I could punish you again, before that makes any difference whatsoever. And, and that just makes it so that there's no, there's no mechanism to keep people pricing high in that time frame. There isn't. I can't think of an answer. If I could think of one, we could sell it to the retailers and be fabulously wealthy. You, you find that companies that don't end up pricing lower during Black Friday, um, do they lose out on a lot? Because everyone's competing aggressively. They're getting the volumes. Do you find that if a company chooses not to price lower, 
that they end up getting hurt a lot. If you say Prisoner's Dilemma, um, I guess that company decides to not so much price high, but they don't offer deep discounts. They're in big trouble, so they almost have to go lower. To be fair, I don't have the data on that, so I can't really say that that's the case. And I'm not even sure I could think of an example where they don't. Maybe some of the high-end stores. So imagine going to Tiffany's or the Apple store. They probably don't do Black Friday sales. Some of the high-end stores may not, but that's because they have the brand built and people who are buying from them are not buying based on price. But in most retail situations, they say that 50% of their revenue comes in December. And if, if you're not willing to compete on price, it's going to be hard to get your 50% mm-hmm. at that point in time. If assuming your competitors are competing on price. And out of curiosity, let me, let me ask you the question. In December, when it's time to go Christmas shopping, do you shop for sales? That's a fair question. I think I am looking out for sales. Um, but depending on the brand, uh, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't have any deep discounts. So I guess your example of Tiffany's was actually a good example. Um, if I were to walk into a Tiffany's or another high-end store uh, during December, and if they didn't have any discounts, I wouldn't say that I would walk out and go shopping for sales. I think I would still continue shopping there, but it's really, it's really for the brand itself. It's a fair point. Just looking at the lines that happen on Friday morning for Black Friday at Walmart stores is it, it, it's mind-boggling to me. Uh, final few questions here, Mark. Um, so, it has to do with maybe a completely different industry than um, what you're used to when uh, people are asking pricing questions or when you're talking about pricing. Uh, but my dad owns a business manufacturing and selling all different types of noodles. Uh, he sells to both retailers as well as to restaurants. Uh, and his margins are pretty small. Um, and competitors, they continue to push profits uh, lower and lower because they continue pricing lower and lower. And um, they almost always have discounts on their products. And so his strategy has always been to start at break even, so kind of cost plus, uh, which is the minimum price that he'll set and then base the price off of competitor pricing and kind of mimic what competitors are, are selling at. Do you have any advice for his startup in this industry and what steps should he be taking in devising a strategy in the noodle business? Yep. <laughs> I love the noodle business. Come on. <laughs> you did this not say cur- this was the curveball that we, we warned you that would be coming, Mark. We, yeah, don't, no worries. we probably don't get a lot of noodle pricing questions. So I do not. We thought I this would be fun for you. <laughs> but, but here's the good news. It's just a product. And here's the way I would be thinking about this. Um, First, you did not say this word, but you could have said the word, a noodle is a commodity. Now, had you said that, I would have said, stop thinking that way. But the way you described it, it's like people look at your dad's noodles and someone else's noodles is pretty similar to each other. And so I have to be priced equal to my competitors or I, you know, I'm not going to win the deal. Here's what I would be thinking if I was in, in the noodle business. How do I add more value to my noodles than my competitors do? And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I would be 
sitting in restaurants or retailers where they buy noodles and where they resell noodles and trying to figure out what are the issues they have? What could I do that would make my noodles easier for them to use, easier for them to cook, easier for them to sell, easier for them to distribute? Whatever it happens to be, I could do something that makes my noodles, it doesn't even have to change the noodle itself, but change the business around the noodle. And if I could make it easier for my buyers, they would pay me a little more than they would pay my competitors. And that's what we always have to be thinking. I'm like, I get my hair cut at Great Clips. I'm really proud of this, everybody. Right? <laughs> but I get my hair cut at Great Clips for one reason. They have an app that makes it so I don't have to stand in line when I walk in the door. That has nothing to do with the haircut. But they win my business every single time because of that app. The question is, what could your father do in the business of selling noodles that would make it easier for people to buy or to be in that business or to resell? And if he could come up with those things, that's adding value, he gets to charge more money. If all he makes is the same noodle as everybody else, he gets to charge the same price as everybody else. Yeah, I like that way of looking at it. Um, not so much looking at the how to make the noodle and the cost and how to price it for customers, but also searching for ways to improve that customer experience when using the noodles or what value add for customers. I like that. Good. Another question uh, for my same business. Uh, so when he initially started the business, he wanted to be seen as a premium brand. Um, he had changed the packaging for it. It's supposed to be better for um, companies that, uh, or even grocery stores uh, that want a product that can sit on the shelf for a little longer. Um, and he believes that the ingredients he puts in the noodles are better than his competitors as well. So he wants to be seen as this premium brand. Uh, but he also believes it's difficult to charge a higher amount because there's very low risk for consumers to switch. There's a lot of different options to choose from and uh, lower prices. Um, competitors, they, they compete on cents at this point. Um, and because of the tough competition, it's very, very common for other brands to offer discounts very frequently. Do you think that offering discounts would hurt his image of being a premium brand? Who's he offering discounts to, the retailer or the end customer? The end customer. So discounts have the possibility of hurting the brand, but it doesn't have to hurt the brand. You, you see discounts on, on high-end things, not super high-end things, but you see discounts on high-end uh, products quite often. But what I would be thinking, um, so let, let, me, let me step back for a second. It isn't truth that matters when people are buying products. It's what their perception of truth is. So what do they believe is true? And your father believes he makes higher quality noodles. Does the market believe it? And if I were in his shoes, what I would be doing is saying, how do I create the packaging or the messaging, something so that I can communicate to my marketplace these noodles are different. These noodles are better, um, higher quality. 
And as soon as people start to believe it, then they'll start to pay for it. But if people don't believe it, then we're back into that price battle. And what we want to do is, is try to make sure we get that image of, hey, this is super high quality. And I don't know that people, your dad probably could, but I don't know that I could tell the difference between two different noodles. Could he take the exact same noodles, put them in two different packages? One package he calls the premium noodles. Another package, he puts a different brand on it and he calls them really good noodles and sells them at two different price points. And if he needs to give discounts to win deals for price sensitive customers, he can do that on the lower end noodles and not on the premium noodles. Yeah, that's a good point. Almost doing a little bit of A-B testing and seeing if customers even think it's premium to begin with. Well, if, it, if the customers don't think it's premium, we're not gonna get paid for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Uh, so Mark, my last question, this one will be an easier one than noodle <laughs> business. Um, but besides your website and besides your blog, uh, what are the top three pricing books or resources that you really enjoyed? I just got done reading Confessions of a Pricing Man, Herman Simon. And I, I got to say my expectations were low and I thought the book was phenomenal. It was really interesting. Um, and so he tells a lot of good stories about what he had done and how he came to learn about pricing. And, and then he, he actually jumped into some really good pricing lessons for companies. Uh, so I thought that was really good. There's, yeah, a, there's a book called Thinking Strategically by Dixit and Nailbuff. And it, so we're gonna go back to when I was a student in, at a doctoral program many, many years ago. And this book was assigned to us and I sat down and read it in one night. It was so fabulous. And it's all about um, game theory but, but game theory is the prisoner's dilemma. Game theory is how we think about how different people are making actions. And they wrote a second edition of this, which is really hard to read. If you can find a used copy of the first edition of Thinking Strategically, it is, it is just a fabulous book. Got to be one of my all-time favorites. So I've got Confessions of a Pricing Man, Thinking Strategically, and if we can find the first copy. Um, first edition, yes. <laughs> <laughs> have to make it out of first edition. Yes. Uh, do you have a, a third resource or book that you really enjoyed? Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Um, my friend, oh, my gosh. I guess he's not my friend if I can't remember his name. Monetizing Innovation is the name of his book and it oh no i can't remember his we we can dig it up and put it in the show notes unless you've got a google window open there sabrina i can look it up and while she's doing that uh sabrina i do have because like mark i do have uh thinking strategically in my uh in my personal collection and being an old guy i'm sure it is a first edition so <laughs> to our next meetup and and uh, loan that to you awesome thanks i've got this one monetizing innovation how smart companies design the product around the price i hope i'm not um 
butchering the name, but uh, Madhavan Ramanujan. Yep, that's perfect. That's Madhavan Ramanujan. Yes, uh, that's. So here's what I love about that book is I teach for pragmatic marketing. I teach product management and how to build products. I'm a pricing expert. I teach pricing. And what Madhavan did there was he took those two concepts and tied them together. And it's based on tons of case studies that they've done. He works for Simon Kucher Partners. And, uh, and so th- I just loved that book as I read it. I thought it was fabulous. Awesome. Thanks for sharing, Mark. Okay, Alan, did you have any uh, questions on your end? Final thoughts or comments? No, I, I think we should watch our time here and, and I, I'll, I'll go into um, my thank yous. So, so thanks, Mark, for your time and, and uh, you know, um, all of the awesome uh, insight. I'm, I'm sure, you know, even if somebody attended your course, maybe, maybe they're not necessarily going to get, uh, you know, to all of this. So we covered a lot of ground. Um, thank you. Uh, before we um, say our goodbyes here, Mark, I always like to give our guests the opportunity if somebody's listening to this and they want to reach out and contact you or follow you, um, any, uh, any ways that uh, they can do that, that you'd like to share? Probably the easiest way to uh, reach out to me, follow me is on LinkedIn. Um, so you'll find me Mark Stiving there. And if you want to email me, feel free to email me. I'm, I'm with pragmatic marketing, obviously. And my email address is M Stiving at pragmaticmarketing.com. Perfect. Um, and um, Sabrina, I'll, I'll do the same for you. Although, uh, you know, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to share any details if you don't want anybody following you or, or, or pes- pescering you for questions, but uh, any, any follow information that you want to share? Yeah, uh, I'll go along the same route. Uh, people can reach me on LinkedIn as well. Um, Sabrina Ma. I don't, have, unfortunately, I don't have any blog or websites, but <laughs> it can be done through LinkedIn. They can watch your uh, they can watch your uh, stellar career that's about to unfold in product management uh, with all these skills you're learning from Mark and I, right? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, I want to I want to thank you both um, for this. Uh, it's it's been uh, it's been really uh, educational. So uh, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for coordinating, and thanks, Mark, for taking the time. Well, it was my pleasure. Good questions, Sabrina. Some of them were hard. Later, right? Closer to the end? (laughs) Yes, yes.